So we're coming towards the end of another day of practice together. As I sit here, I, I uh, feel touched by uh, the commitment and good-heartedness and uh, willingness that uh, you as individuals and we together as a, as a group are embodying over these days. Precious. And, you know, maybe as we spend this time together on retreat, maybe you're, you're noticing uh, kind of cycles of, of expansion and contraction. Times when the heart, the chitta, uh, the, the, the sense of... Uh, you, One's almost being seems more expansive and spacious and easeful, peaceful. And other times when it seems to kind of contract and there's a sense of kind of difficulty or stuckness or uh, just constriction somehow. Anybody not noticing that? Just out of interest? You know. yeah. And kind of the laugh, you know, let's all hear that as encouragement, yeah, <laughs> right? Because, you know, part of what we're seeing here is, is that this is, well, it's the way all natural living things exist, isn't it? Cycles of expansion and contraction. You know, even, you know, solar systems do it. <laughs> let alone cells and all breathing living things you know this is this is the way this is the way it is and and uh you of course in daily life we also experience these cycles of, of expansion and contraction but we don't have the same conditions and support really to notice and kind of honor and find a, a sort of ground of equanimity with the cycles. We get so much more easily caught up in the expansion and the, especially in the contraction, don't we? You know? And, you know, the, the, the Buddhist teachings really point to what it is that intensifies particularly the contraction the ways in which somehow we we amplify that we we get you know that that natural cycle somehow gets kind of uh, intensified and uh, sort of strengthened through uh, habits of perception and mind and reactivity and we've we've spoken to a few times and and referred to this incredibly important and central insight that the Buddha articulated in the four ennobling truths that or at least this is you know we could treat it in a more kind of skeptical age as a hypothesis that 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 dukkha this experience of dissatisfaction and distress 
arises dependent on reactivity, craving, the, the pursuit of the pleasant Vedana and the attempt to push away and avoid and get rid of the unpleasant Vedana. Do, do we sense that? Because this is, this is kind of the, you know, in kind of coding language, this is the kind of algorithm that runs through the whole Dharma. This is the, the insight that is central to, you know, the Buddha's uh, you know, articulation of the human condition in a certain way. That, that it is this wanting things to be different from how they are wanting more of the pleasant, wanting to be rid of the unpleasant. Again, anyone not relate to that? <laughs> you know, this is, this is you know, the, the, the sort of part of the genius of the Buddha that he articulates something and he kind of makes all his teachings revolve around this, this, this truth that we can all experience. We can all experience dukkha and we can all experience that this you know, wanting things to be different, <laughs> you know, as the kind of support for that dukkha, the, the condition for that dukkha, you know. And, you know, in the, in the Four Ennobling Truths, the, the Buddha both articulates this as the, the origin of, of dukkha and also articulates the path in the, in the Fourth Truth, the Eightfold Path, to the gradual alleviation of this, through this craving, this dukkha, this reactivity, this dukkha, through the cultivation and training in a path of ethics, of, of mental training and collectedness as supports and catalysts for a training in understanding. Because, you know, although we, the, 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 the second noble truth suggests that the kind of immediate cause for dukkha is this craving, this wanting things to be different from how they are that gets intensified by clinging. The underlying cause is, the Buddha suggests, basic misunderstandings about the way things are. And that the experience, and some of you are really having this experience in very kind of graphic ways, th that it's understanding more clearly that frees. It's seeing the way things are that frees. It's this uh, experience of insight. You know. and, and we could really say that the central journey of this path is the journey of a developing and a deepening insight. H hence the name of this place, of course. You know. What is insight? Well, we can, we can kind of loop it back and say, well, insight perhaps is any understanding or seeing clearly that brings a decrease, a dissolving of this basic reactivity and therefore of dukkha to whatever degree. Does, does that make sense? Can you feel that? You know, 
that in any dimension that that we could say insight is what is is any seeing or understanding that brings a diminishing of distress diminishing of dissatisfaction and a d- diminishing of the craving the reactivity that gives rise to it and we can sense in that that there's a difference between the kind of intellectual knowing and the experiential insight you know we can as christina was saying the other day we can kind of, we we all agree with the idea of impermanence for instance we can kind of intellectually assent to it but have we metabolized that to the degree that it actually changes the way we live you know and this is a journey this is a journey this this gradual integration and uh, kind of naturalizing of ways of understanding that bring a freeing bring a progressive and a deepening freeing and so I, i'd like in in uh, the this evening just to try to kind of outline some of the key domains of insight in which we can experience this and and one of these is the personal domain um and you know this really is the domain of the patterns and the habits that are particular to us you know we may share them with others but but actually they are part of the kind of our distinctive patterning um and you know so many of you've been reporting on noticing these like patterns of planning you know just how the mind just kind of relentlessly plans and somehow i hadn't really noticed just how much kind of airtime gets taken up with that you know or or fantasizing or ruminating or the the self-judgmental patterns that so many of us kind of start to recognize more fully when we begin a mindfulness practice or when we come on retreat you know this kind of internal judge who never finds us not guilty you know uh, that can also so easily be externalized you know judging myself judging others it sometimes it's quite shocking on retreat isn't it to notice just how much judging is going on in this mind and it kind of has a life of its own you know and you know, the seeing somehow changes the relationship doesn't it can can we feel that you know the seeing of the pattern of catastrophizing or of kind of projecting onto other people the kind of replaying of old patterns we kind of you know we we have a bit of a and this is what the embodied practice does you know cr- finding a ground in the body sort of creates a vantage point that somehow gives a perspective on habits that otherwise we're so kind of immersed in that we just don't really notice they kind of run our lives and yet we don't really notice that's what what's happening we can also in this domain of personal insight really notice stories that we have come to believe about ourselves uh, or about our life you know about our journey if you like ways in which we've made sense or tried to make sense of past events and experiences 
difficulties and struggles. You know? And and again, you know, the, this practice, you know, quite a number of you have been speaking about noticing the stories and the kind of beliefs that are enshrined in them about who I am or what my journey has been, you know. And important to say that that stories are important. You know, we are we are story creating beings as human beings, aren't we? We live inside stories inevitably. You know. And you know, they're part of also what give us, what Christina spoke about yesterday, the sense of personhood, our distinctive flavoring. And yet we can also notice that sometimes it's not that we're telling the stories, it's that the stories are telling us. You know, that, that there's such an identification with the stories or the, the kind of self-images that may be enshrined in them self-views of myself as somehow inadequate or unlovable or the one who always has to be in charge, you know, the one who always has to be competent or or get it right, you know. And and we can start to feel like these, you know, these stories are, well, they can sort of feel like, you know, old clothes that we've grown out of but we've not stopped wearing so that they just kind of fit tightly you know too tightly because somehow I've outgrown but I continue to try to put on these you know old clothes or these shoes that pinch you know my being somehow important to say that that stories can be helpful and healing and reclaiming and honoring you know, sometimes we need to learn to tell different stories that somehow more fully honor our experience. But we can also see how stories that once were helpful, once were protective, can become unhelpful, can become limiting, can become constricting. When we identify with them, when we have taken them for who we really are, Can we feel this? Can we feel this? Because this is really part of the liberation of this practice, part of the healing of this practice, where we discover we no longer have to be so identified with those stories, those self-views, those images that somehow uh, no longer honor or liberate. They just constrict and limit. You know, as I say, really important not to pathologize them because at one stage they probably had a really important protective function or a meaning-making function. But now, but now, you know, rather like that poem Yen I read, until now, you know, until now. It's, it's always possible to tell a different story. You know, no story can ever be the whole truth. Truth is always bigger than any story or self-view that I, I might have identified with, no matter for how long. You know. 
So, so you know, what we're cultivating is a kind of freedom with stories rather than a freedom from stories. But really to know that sense that this, uh, the story is not who we are, ultimately are. And this sometimes get hi- gets highlighted, and again, some of you have really noticed that, the contrast between the story and the meta practice. Do we feel that? You know, because so often the stories are stories of kind of inadequacy, you know, unlovability. And the meta practice is, it sort of so immediately kind of challenges us to begin to befriend that which we've somehow rejected or bound up in this story that has kept it, kept aspects of ourselves uh, kind of rejected somehow. And this is part of the nature of these Brahma-Vihara qualities that we've, we keep referring to during the week, the quality of meta-friendliness, of appreciative joy, of compassion, of equanimity. You know, these really are the kind of factors of well-being. These are integral to well-being and they're deeply resourcing. And part of their very nature, the Buddha described them as as limitless. They're qualities that can you know, expand limitlessly. And what they highlight as they do that is where we've been limited by a story or a self-definition. Yeah. So they kind of loosen the identification with that. They loosen the contraction around that. They kind of decondition the identifications that, that have perhaps kept us bound up. And they also fill the space previously occupied by identification and contraction. And I'm kind of, kind of emphasizing this, this role of the Brahma Viharas, really because it, it feels so important to keep the journey of insight nourished, grounded, lubricated, inspired, catalyzed, you know, <laughs> by these qualities of, of the Brahma Viharas, because they are so, so uh, deeply supportive and contextualizing and enable this kind of sloughing off of, of older identities <laughs> that it's time to release. So this, you know, this whole domain of, of personal insight, a really huge, we could spend a long time really just reflecting on this, but just to honor this and just to honor some of the discoveries and the releasings, some of the grievings and the rejoicings that are happening within this group as we have these these insights you know over these days together personal insights what's true particularly of of me and my journey even though patterns may and are shared with countless others universal insights by contrast are insights that are true of all people, all beings, even all things. And the Dharma, the, the Buddha Dharma, tends to orient towards the, what Christina calls sometimes the universal story. Because one way of 
of understanding the word dharma is, is a kind of natural law, the natural way things are. The, 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 that which is true in all conditions, that is kind of universally, transhistorically, transsituationally true. You know, and that's part of the refuge of it. It orients us midst the personal delights and difficulties of our lives because it's, it's somehow always true. And so, you know, uh, universal insights in the domain of Dharma, well, you know, this is the whole Dharma at some level is, is available really to be uh, kind of metabolized as insight. But there are three particular insights that the tradition and one's experience really highlight as having particularly powerful liberating qualities when we come to see them and sense them deeply. And these are the the insights into impermanence, into unsatisfactoriness, and into not-self. And we, we can see, in a sense, how the, our tendency to see things as permanent, to see things as able to satisfy us, and to see things as, as being me or mine or you and yours, we can see how that supports the pushing and pulling of craving and aversion, doesn't it? You know, this kind of... Uh, proximate cause, this immediate cause of dukkha. It's because I believe things are solid and able to satisfy and who I am that I get into the kind of reactivity around them, wanting the pleasant, not wanting the unpleasant. And again, we may hear these truths of of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and not-self and kind of know them intellectually, but just to kind of say again that this journey of insight is, is one of coming to know them, we might say, in our bones. And the, the Buddha uh, described this. He, he described kind of three tiers of insight. He said the insight that comes through hearing, you know, really useful, valuable to hear these teachings. A deeper level, the insight that comes through reflection through thinking about in our age, through maybe reading about or listening to Dharma talks about, you know. And then the kind of deeper and deepest and deepening tier of the insight that comes through cultivation and through practice, through this, we've used this word bhavana, this bringing into being, you know. And We can see, and, and you'll be sensing this maybe in, in, in moments of seeing and knowing and understanding that, that may be happening for you, that, that generally seeing things once isn't enough. <laughs> Do you notice that? You know, it's almost like, I appreciate a, one of my colleagues who says, insights kind of land us on a fence where we could tip into a kind of new way of being. But what so easily happens is we kind of tip back into the old way, you know? And, and again, the laughter, you know, for me that's really encouraging, partly because it means that it's not just 
to me this happens. Uh, b- but, but also because we can see here something about the nature of insight, that actually insights kind of need to be practiced. They need to be cultivated. We need to, to find ways of aligning our way of looking, if you like, the spectacles through which we see experience with how we're living. You know? And this is true both in the, the domain of personal insights and of these more universal insights. You know? So, on the one hand, we can see how mindfulness practice, meta practice, these practices that we're really going deeply into this week, they, they naturally give rise to insight as fruit, if you like. You know? It's the nature of mindfulness to tend to dissolve some of the sort of compacted ways in which we've uh, become habituated to unhelpful perceptions of ourselves, of our experience, both in the personal domain and in the universal domain. So, you know, through doing mindfulness practice, we start to be more available for the impermanence of things, the, the kind of innate, inability of things to satisfy, the, 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 the not-self nature of experience. But don't we also just feel how deeply ingrained our tendencies are not to see things in that kind of way? You know, how deeply ingrained we are, how conditioning, how strong our conditioning is. The Buddha described this practice as like swimming upstream you know, swimming upstream. And for that reason, as well as uh, honoring the, the way in which insights can arise as fruits, the Buddha also spoke about the way in which insights can work as path, as practice, as contemplations, as insights that we kind of, like a pair of spectacles, we put on and practice that way of looking in order to change our habitual ways of perceiving. Does that make sense? It's what we're doing with the meta practice, isn't it? You know, as we expand through the categories during the week, we're we're practicing a way of looking. You know, may you be safe and well. May you be peaceful. You know, I'm wishing this, this for people to whom we don't naturally, perhaps, or kind of instinctively towards whom we don't naturally have those wishes. And that's a kind of practicing of a way of looking that helps to, to, to naturalize this as a more default kind of orientation in our lives, a more unconditional goodwill, a more unconditional friendliness. And, you know, in, in just the same way, these insights into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self, and countless other insights can also be practiced. And the Buddha spoke about this with the word anupasana, which literally means to see with. Very close in a certain way to our word contemplation. You know, a template through which we view our experience. But, Does that make sense? Yeah? So a way of looking that we're cultivating. And so if we think about the domain of of impermanence, you know, the the tradition 
really strongly recommends this as a way of looking. The Buddha uh, is reported as having said, better than a hundred years lived without seeing the arising and passing away of things is one day spent seeing their arising and passing. This is, this is an important insight really to be cultivating. You know. And to let that insight really kind of impress itself on us, really we kind of register it more deeply than we normally do. And you know, maybe the end of a day is, is quite a good and interesting time to do that. You know, where's the mood or mental state that you woke up with this morning? You know, where are this afternoon's thoughts or preoccupations? You know, where are the, the body sensations that you thought were going to remain the same always? You know? we start to just get a sense at the end of a day how, you know, just how much change there has been during this thing that we call a day, hasn't there? You know, just how much change? Maybe how many cycles of expansion and contraction or, you know, a big sense of contraction at one point in the day, which now doesn't feel like that, even though we thought we kind of would never smile again, you know? The, there's a, a phrase that again and again occurs in the discourses as the phrase that actually gives rise to people's experience of a full awakening when, when they saw that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. It's really one to turn over and over in one's heart. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. We've seen it with the weather this week, haven't we? You know, we see it with the seasons. We see it in our health and in our bodies. These cycles, these cycles, arising and passing, arising and passing, expanding and contracting in our personal lives, our family lives, our society, our community, the cycles of birth and aging and death and new birth. However we understand that, we can see, you know, that this pervades all experience, doesn't it? You know? And really to contemplate this, you know, really to register it in our heads, but also in our hearts and in our bodies. And part of what we can see there is that by having that contemplation, it can help to inform the, the present moment understanding of our experience. You know? So that when we are caught in a contraction, we, we have a sense of, okay, this is unpleasant, but I know that it will pass. May not feel like it, but, but that larger contemplation of expansion and contraction, of, of impermanence, just really, I know that it will pass. You know, this mood, this mental state, this situation at work, 
You know, even even mood states that we kind of project a solidity onto, like the word depression, you know. The actual experience often is that there are there are many moments, even when I'm depressed, when actually that's not the that's not the flavor of the moment. Does that make sense? I haven't explained that as well as I would have liked. You know, that, that somehow there's a mirage of solidity created by the word depression. That the actual experience of it is much more changeable. Yeah? And it, it's so helpful to see how the mind creates these mirages of solidity. Particularly, you know, about past and future. I was, as I was just reflecting on this this afternoon, I was remembering an image that Yanai used on that retreat that I went on with him, which is quite a long time ago, and it has really stayed with me, of, of driving in a car. And, you know, when you're driving in the car, if you look ahead, it looks solid. If you look back, it looks solid. If you look to the side, you see how quickly things are changing, you know? And somehow that sense of, you know, the future looks solid, doesn't it? You know, whatever we're projecting, you know, maybe it's the next meal, you know, the kind of drama in our day here, you know? (laughs) Or, Or maybe it's the end of the retreat, you know? And it can be helpful just to say, well, look, is this a bit of a mirage here? You know, that when I actually get to it, uh, I'll realize actually experience is changing very fast. You know, what is the moment that I'm thinking of as the ending of the retreat? Is it the final bell or speaking again or turning out the drive onto the road or, you know, getting to the front door or the hug at home if there is one, you know? Just, just to notice, actually, this is, all of these experiences will be arising and passing, arising and passing, you know? None of them has the solidity that we project onto them. And and maybe you can feel that there's a certain kind of relief in that. (laughs) Kind of taking the weight off some experience that I'm kind of solidified, hoping that it was going to do it for me. Whether it's the kind of tofu or the getting home, you know. And... You know, part of this practicing this way of looking, or the tacos, sorry, not the tofu, yeah, the the tacos. I know, kind of, various people spoke about seeing that on the blackboard and, you know, expansion, you know. (laughs) You know, know, but even eating the tacos, can we notice that, you know, the experience is, is changing moment by moment? You know, the first bite, you know, just noticing how the Vedana is changing. And this is not to kind of, not to honor the loveliness of things or the tastiness of, you know, tacos, but just to see that experience is, is, is it's like looking on the side of the car. It's changing very fast, isn't it? You know, the Buddha compared Vedana to being like raindrops on water. That's how quickly they're changing. Try that out on our next meal, you know? And we start to see that, you know, no two moments are actually the same. Just like no two moments of body sensations are the same. 
No two moments of, of mental experience are the same. Isn't this true? You know, some of you have really spoken about, you know, working with, with pain, which again creates a mirage of solidity, the word, and actually the experience of it being much more kind of pixelated and flickering and changing than the label suggests. You know. So we can see, and I'm, I'm going to sort of just keep moving with this because there's so much in each of these, but can we see that actually that, that contemplation of impermanence, of change, helps to decondition the tendency to grasp after and to push away. We find that the pleasant and the unpleasant are flickering, changing experiences rather than having the solidity that the mirage suggests. Does that make sense? And you know, we can, this deconditioning, this deconditioning of the tendency to cling and to crave and to pursue and to avoid is the kind of undermining, the, as I, we understand it more deeply, it undermines the sort of s- structures from which craving arises. And the Buddha summarized this in an incredibly pithy saying. He said, in seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When the mind doesn't cling, it is not agitated. When it's not agitated, it naturally attains Nibbana. You know, that's a, that's a very condensed <laughs> version, but do, do we see what he means? You know, the agitation of pursuit and avoidance in reactivity to Vedana. And that it's the non-agitation that is that has this uh, momentum, or has a has a, an orientation towards nibbana. It brings this freedom, as as the the tendency to cling and to crave is uprooted. And you know, we we need to honour the heart's response to impermanence. You know, there may be a sense of relief. When we we see, oh, I don't need to pursue it and avoid, you know, there may be also the sense of poignancy, you know, sorrow even, and something of the metabolizing of impermanence is also part of the allowing ourselves to feel what we feel around it. This is partly why these Brahma Vihara qualities are so supportive to this. And it's important to say that seeing impermanence is, not, is, is only a way of looking at some level. It's a very important, a very helpful way of looking. But it's not somehow the ultimate reality. The, the deepest understandings may go beyond even permanence and impermanence. But we can see how the seeing of impermanence, in a sense, gives rise to the second of these realizations, the realization about the inability of pleasant and unpleasant Vedana to provide lasting satisfaction. Don't we see that? You know, I may be, you know, 
have spent the morning thinking about the chocolate, but actually I find that the chocolate is a spike of pleasant Vedana, but it doesn't give a kind of lasting satisfaction. Now this is not to, all of these are ways of looking. Let's remember they're kind of strategic, therapeutic, liberating ways of looking. This is not about an aversion to things. You know, actually, as William Blake's quotation that Jan I quoted highlights, the sense of joy and our capacity to appreciate grows, in, is enriched by kissing rather than binding, as William Blake put it. Do you remember? You know, honoring without clinging and craving for. And, and that orients to this to us towards this sense of of uh, of the unsatisfactoriness of things this inability of of pleasant or unpleasant really to give a lasting satisfaction and this is an orientation to, towards equanimity or to what a colleague of ours calls a, a kind of holy disinterest or dispassion not uninterest but disinterest. Do we, do we sense the difference between, between those? The sense of, okay, I could, dot, 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 but I don't need to. And he, he calls it holy because it's saying, actually, there's a, there's a greater freedom that's available here rather than just the pleasantness of chasing pleasant Vedana. Does that make sense? There's a kind of, it's, it's where there's an orientation toward, towards a deeper freedom, a deeper liberation. And in a certain way, this, this second mark, really uh, the second quality of, of practicing seeing the inability of any particular experience to give lasting satisfaction, it supports the sense of allowing. It's, it's cultivated by a sense of allowing things to be as they are. Letting things be as they are. A quietening of the push and pull. Some of you have been really noticing how the body <clears throat> so kind of graphically highlights this sense that dukkha, which is the word that in this context is translated as unsatisfactoriness or inability to satisfy. Dukkha is dependent on craving because we, we find that when the mind is craving something, the body tightens up. When the body relaxes, often the mind relaxes somewhat too. Have we been feeling that this week? You know, yes. This is, you know, part of the gradual cultivation is a deeper ease in the body and finding that the mind is more willing to let things be as they are. Is, is less driven by pursuit and avoidance. Is, is, this, is this making sense? Can we feel how the insight into impermanence really underlies this sense that, that, uh, of the unsatisfactoriness? It sounds a kind of slightly world-denying term, unsatisfactoriness, but it's just pointing to the truth that these you know, flickering, fleeting experiences of pleasant and unpleasant can't, fully satisfy and that actually there's a deeper peace that comes from the orientation to equanimity towards this kind of holy or uh, 
liberating dispassion. <laughs> you know. Yeah? Then there's a whole other talk that it feels like could be given about the importance of both passion and dispassion on this path. So this is not about losing our sense of passion, and we've spoken about this already. But this, this willingness, this developing a skillful capacity to let things be as they are. To breathe with them rather than brace against them. And this is also uh, you know, so highlighted by the, the third and last of these ways of looking that have such power to bring a freedom, a, an unbinding, uh, a new sense of capacity and uh, availability uh, in our lives. And this is this insight into anatta, anatta, which means not self. Part of what we can notice is that when there is contraction, the contraction of, of, of wanting the pleasant or not wanting the unpleasant, we feel that other things happen around that. There's the contraction in the body, right? There's the contraction in the mental space. If I really want the chocolate chip cookie, you know, then the mind contracts, doesn't it? Just as if I really don't want you know, the deer fly in my room, you know? We, we can sense how the, this is a very kind of natural function of the mind, that there's contraction, and the body contracts as well, because mind and body are not separate here. We can also notice that, the, that at the same, you know, co-arising with that also is a sense of self. As somebody who likes or dislikes, who wants or doesn't want, do we recognize that? There's a kind of intensification of the self-sense and, of course, of the story that comes with that, you know, which so often is a, is a story of lack. Things are not as I would like them to be, either because I want more of the pleasant or because I want less of the unpleasant. Yeah? So this, there's a, this selfing that arises with a kind of story with it. At least all of this is hypothesis. You, you're getting that point. This is, I'm not, you know, the Buddha's not trying to tell us how things, you know, this is an invitation to investigate rather than an, an ideology or a dogma, right? You know. What we can also notice, though, that is that with the, with the selfing, there tends to be othering. And the othering could be in terms of an object. So if we take the, you know, the oat, chocolate chip cookies we had, you know, when I really want it, do we notice that it comes, it kind of plumps up a bit, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> uh, and the Vedana of it, it starts to glow. This is, of course, and Jan, I described this as how advertising works, isn't it? There's, it sort of invokes the sense of craving, and then there's me and this thing, you know, that's been pumped up by the craving. Does that, does that make sense? Or it's pumped up in a negative way. It's unpleasant. The deer fly, you know, something I want to get rid of and the unpleasantness also gets pumped up. Can we feel that? You know? So the, the othering uh, 
you know, is, is co-arises with the selfing and co-arises with a sense of time. Just notice that. Either a sense of urgency, I've got to get it, you know. Or, and it's possible that some of you may have occasionally noticed this on the retreat about the sense of time, you know, that, that I'm, you know, I've got this wanting that is more urgent than the actual pace at which time is unfolding, you know? <laughs> and this is also, and it's so helpful, and some of you have commented on this, you know, to see that the perception of time is also a dependent arising in this. Notice how much the perception of time on retreat depends on the mood or mental state of the moment. Can we feel that? You know, how much it depends on the degree of craving that there is present in the mind in any moment. So helpful to kind of see through the, the constructing, the fabrication of perceptions of time in that way. So, you know, the self, what we have here is a self that is not an entity, but as Christina was saying, a process, selfing. Or we could say, uh, uh, or and we can say, a spectrum. Because we can notice that selfing intensifies and diminishes. Can we feel that? So if we think back to our cycles of expansion and contraction, do we notice that that in the times of contraction, often the sense of selfing intensifies. In the times of expansion, it diminishes. It can kind of dissolve sometimes. And there's just a sense of spaciousness and ease. So to start to notice that this, the sense of self is a dependent arising. Dependent on the conditions of mind in the moment. Dependent on the mood of the moment. Dependent above all on the degree of craving, of reactivity that's present in the moment. That an intensification of selfing co-arises with an intensification of distress or dissatisfaction. That a quietening of selfing co-arises with a quietening of dissatisfaction and distress. Can, can we feel that? You know, this is something, you know, really to notice, really to turn our attention towards, really to develop as a contemplation. And the Buddha in, so the, the discourses suggest, in, in really giving, you know, core advice to his son, <laughs> said this, Every aspect of experience should be seen as it really is with perfect wisdom thus. This is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. And can you see what he's doing in the light of this spectrum or process of selfing that intensifies and diminishes? If, if one changes any one of those conditions, you know, the tightening of the body, the contracting of the mind, the the, the, the craving, the aversion, the, the selfing, the othering, the perception of time, if one changes any of those, if one diminishes any of those, all the others diminish at the same time. Just like when you're running and you think you're late for a train, and then you, you discover that the train or the bus or whatever it is, the appointment, uh, has, is, has been delayed and you've got an extra half hour or an extra 20 minutes. Oh, 
sense of relief, all those other factors that were busy intensifying so that other people were kind of in my way, diminish. Do, do we notice that? You know, so the change the perception of time and the perception of all those other factors changes. Change the perception of self. The degree of identification with experience in the moment. And also, there is likely to be a diminishing of dukkha, a diminishing of all the other factors. So the Buddha's advice, practice seeing things as not me, not mine. And we've been practicing with this this week, haven't we? Contemplate the body as the body. To find the freedom of no longer being so identified with the body that we take it to be me and mine. And, you know, just looking in the mirror in the morning is a drama, you know. Uh, Body sensations of, of discomfort, practice seeing them as not me, not mine. What happens? Isn't there a quietening of the degree of reactivity and story? Seeing Vedana, pleasant and unpleasant, as just like the raindrops on the water, not me, not mine. Seeing the mental states and moods, as Jan and I were saying this morning, that come and go like the weather. Well, maybe they're as non-personal as the weather. They're also just born of conditions like the weather is. Not me, not mine. Thoughts, how freeing it is to see that thought just as a mental event or like this kind of thought bus that has come around and wanting me to get on board. And and actually, not me, not mine, just a thought. The habits, the unhelpful beliefs, my patterns of reactivity, my stories, impulses. What if all of the the my can be taken out of those and just see them for what they are? You know? Oh, not me, not mine, just patterns, just habits, just thoughts, just beliefs, just even intentions, you know? The intentions that navigate us through the day, just Notice that we can experience them and become mindful of them without having to identify with them. Skillful intentions, unskillful intentions, not me, not mine, just intentions. Even the intention to see things as not me, not mine. What about if that's not me, not mine? You know? What you may notice is that the kind of the last hideout for the identification is often with awareness itself. Maybe you can even feel that in this moment. And again, it's not that there's something wrong with that. In some spiritual traditions, that's really kind of uh, encouraged the identification with the one who knows, the witness consciousness. You know. but, but the Buddha points to potentially an even deeper freedom that comes from seeing that even awareness itself is not me, not mine. You know? That it, it is in the, in the Buddhist psychology, even that is a dependent arising, not who we ultimately are. There's, there's a deeper freedom possible. Or as the Buddha put it, in whatever way one conceives of the self, the truth is ever other than that. 
And important to notice that this is a teaching of not-self, not of no-self. So the, there's no denial here of the experience of self, you know, which of course arises. Nor is there an, a, a, a denial or an attempt to get rid of the self, but rather to see it's empty or conditioned, we could say that it arises based and dependent on conditions rather than being a solid, permanent entity. It's kind of like a mirage or a rainbow. You know, a rainbow, beautiful. You know, look for it. You know, we can't find it because it's, it's arising dependent on conditions. Maybe the sense of self is the same. Let's, you know, we can try that and see what happens to dukkha when I practice seeing things as not me, not mine? When I practice seeing in this way? And in a certain way, we can see how you know, dukkha and dissatisfaction are like a dial that we, we can turn either way. And it's kind of helpful to, to almost play with it and see, okay, I'm going to intensify dukkha in this moment. How can I intensify dukkha? I can really get reactive. I can tighten up the body. I can take things personally, you know. And just to see, oh, these are the factors that intensify dukkha. And that will highlight what are the factors that tend to support the de-intensification, the quietening of dukkha, the quietening of distress the releasing of craving and clinging, the recognizing of change, the seeing the non-personal nature of conditions. Does this make sense? Can we feel this? You know, again, not, not as a dogma, but as a way of looking that has deep liberating power. So these... Uh, this domain of insight, ways of understanding that diminish dukkha, that diminish dissatisfaction and distress by diminishing and and uprooting the craving, the reactivity that gives rise to it. In the domain of personal insight, what we've got identified with that actually maybe it's time to release. In the domains of the, uh, of universal insight through seeing impermanence, through seeing the inability of, of Vedana to satisfy lastingly, and through this cultivation of the, the perception of not-self. In the light of insight, perhaps only equanimity makes sense, a kind of compassionate, caring, equanimity. We see that, that uh, there's a taste of freedom here when we cultivate ways of looking that, that release dukkha, that release reactivity. And this is a freedom from, so a freedom from the reactivity and, and distress that follows from it. It's a freedom with the way things are, you know, with the, 
the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of the experience of being human with the expansions and with the contractions. Noticing that the world is no less colorful for developing the capacity to, to respond rather than just react, to have equanimity and compassion rather than just impulse. And it's a freedom to, so a freedom from, a freedom with, and a freedom to engage in the particular lives that each of us is living with a greater sense of presence, with a greater sense of steadiness, with a deeper sense of resource, and with a more available kindness and compassion. With the cool head and warm heart that somehow are the orientation and fruition of this practice. We come to see that, that freedom and peace and availability for contentment, for joy, for compassion, don't depend so much on the circumstances of our lives as on the re our relationship with those circumstances and on what we're cultivating in the midst of them. And we see that it's truly within the capacity of each of us to cultivate a heart that is increasingly loving and increasingly free. So let's just sit for a few moments together. Thank you for your patient attention. Uh, let's take some time for walking practice before the final sit of the day. 